Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Ecclesiastes, chapter number one. We will be there in just a few minutes. If you're new, visiting as a guest, in from out of town, welcome. My name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here at Union Church. And really, uh, what we're about is following Jesus in all of life, simply and together. And so if you have any questions about the church, the easiest way to get those answered would be to fill out the Connect card in the back, put it in the black give box, and we would be happy to uh, get to know you as you get to know us. We have a, a new membership class coming up in May. I believe it's the 15th and 22nd. Uh, the first one is just kind of who we are, what we believe. Second week is how we roll uh, as a church together, so you can put that on your calendar. And then May 14th, we've been announcing there's a community-wide Quad City Day of Service with a bunch of churches partnering together for the common good. Uh, you can get more information about that at servecollective.org. But for today, in Easter, we're in Ecclesiastes. And you may wonder, if you know your Bible, you go, of all the books, Ecclesiastes on Easters? <laughs> yes. And the reason is this. We are doing, through this year, a very fast tour through the Scriptures. So we started the first week of January in Genesis, and it just so happens that today is Ecclesiastes. So I am going to, in the next, God willing, 25-ish minutes, uh, try to make that connection for us all. So I'm going to read, pray, and then see what God has for us this Easter Sunday. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. And I'm laughing because this is, to me, hilarious on Easter. So, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What gain does a man have by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And we had that yesterday. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Well, this is God's word. Let's pray. So, Father, now as we look to your word and the reality that it brings into our lives, we ask that you would be pleased uh, to work and speak and, and show us your son and how he changes and transforms everything. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you want a title, and we're trying to alliterate all of these, sorry, not sorry, reality, remember, rebuild. The world is a wild place and navigating it well is a complex process. We all wonder at some point or another, what is the point to it all? We all have deeply embedded within us this search for 
meaning, for value, for worth, for what's the point of it all. And Ecclesiastes is one book that offers some help and a little bit of hope. Pastor Zach Eswine says this about the book. Ecclesiastes determines to show us how to find our way amid the broken sacred of the world. Ecclesiastes shows us more of God than perhaps we knew or are comfortable with. The same God who inspired the Psalms and the Gospels speaks here too. These inspired words, which disturb us, reveal aspects of God too often neglected by us. If one has only driven a car with an automatic transmission, driving manually will take some getting used to. Because of the safe, clean-cut, pristine, sentimental, or naive approaches to Christianity and church that have mentored many of us, we may cherish a mistaken notion of God that resembles a more G-rated approach to life. Ecclesiastes reminds us, however, wherever there is, whatever the conversation, whatever the question or unsettling situation, God is able and willing to go there. Ecclesiastes has been called the most real of all books. And to understand how it functions, I find the metaphor most helpful of, of, a, of a remodel of a house. In order to rebuild, you first need to demolish. And what Ecclesiastes does is it rips away the facade that many of us carry throughout life. There's a character throughout the book named The Preacher, for you kids that want a fancy Hebrew word to put in your uh, Hebrew tool belt, Kohelet. Kohelet is the one who has gathered the people. It's someone who has collected teaching and wisdom through observation and experience. And his favorite word, you get two Hebrew words this morning, is Havel, which here in the ESV is translated vanity, which doesn't mean like looking in the mirror so much and being like, oh, how do I look? Not that sense of vanity. It's a very difficult word to translate. It means absolute futility, meaninglessness, and it's used 38 times in the book. And it's the reality of life itself. This word vanity, havel, vapor, is the idea of being vapor or smoke. It's temporary and it's fleeting. Derek Kidner says it's a wisp of vapor, a puff of wind, a mere breath, nothing you can get your hands on, the nearest thing to zero. That's the vanity this book is about. It's saying that life and so many of the things held within life is an enigma and it's a paradox. You think you can grasp it and then poof, it's gone. I, I think it may be what Shakespeare had in mind when he said, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Throughout this book, the preacher uses proverbs and metaphors and experience to teach us, and it can be somewhat of a downer at times because there's not this direct messianic sight or hope. And the, the, the preacher starts with his conclusion, and that's verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He is stacking up repetition so we would get the point. And, and maybe this juncture, we would go, or junction, we would go, really? Everything? Everything is vapor? Everything is smoke? Everything is an enigma and a paradox? And what I love about this book is that the preacher is not so quick 
to answer the question. The preacher delays. He takes us on a tour. Where God, if you were with us when we looked at Job, took Job on a tour throughout the grand cosmos. He showed him all of creation. The preacher takes our hand and walks us through the reality of life. He, he takes us on a tour through the entirety of the human experience. He'll explore career, time, pleasure, wealth, status, wisdom. All of it, he concludes, is vanity. And again, I can appreciate this, and I think we should, is because he's not so quick to go to cliches. So many of us are sick of cliches. We are not sustained by cliches, by easy answer, by trivial, throwaway, sentimental, hallmark cards. Those don't help in life. And that's not to say anything about my mother-in-law who loves the Hallmark Channel on the treadmill. More power to you. It's just not real life. And again, the journey reaches far and wide, and he said that it's all vanity. And the question is, what can be gained? We see that in verse 3 and 4. What can be gained from it? What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He asks that question 30 times throughout the book. Is there any value to it? And at times you read the book and you go, this guy just needs a hug. Like he's just depressed, he's down, he's not happy. Maybe a magic pill. He needs a hug. But again, this, this preacher, this author is looking at the cyclical nature of life as it is. This technological advances abound, and yet the more things change, as it's been said, the more they stay the same. I love the line from one commentator. It says that life is endlessly busy, yet hopelessly inconclusive. And in reading this book, there's a few ways in which we can respond. One is depression. You go, if it's all vanity, then what's the point? Life doesn't matter. It's just full of doubts and apathy, and it's kind of, you know, the end of Bohemian Rhapsody. Nothing really matters. Anyone can see nothing really matters to me. Or another option outside of depression is, for some of you, you just go towards the place of dismissive. There's still a search for meaning, and, and I'm not necessarily going to go with the wisdom that Scripture has, and I'll dismiss all of that and go on my own journey. But again, even in that, there's still that itch, there's still that nag that... Uh, again, to quote, I think it's you too, that we still haven't found what we're looking for. So the journey and the search continues. Or, and, and what I would submit is that we allow the demolishing of the facade in order that we can rebuild on a firm foundation. Life is hard. There's no guarantees. It is very much fleeting. And so how do we find enjoyment? What's the point of it all? Well, the first thing in, in one of the biggest lessons of the book is that we have to accept that reality of life as it actually is. Again, the, the writer will say, it is all vanity. It is all fleeting. Therefore, enjoy what you have in this moment. Accept the fact that it is fleeting, that it is unpredictable. And enjoy what we have here and now. But, and we don't have the time to go through the whole book, but in the end, he reaches this conclusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. And says this, Remember then also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. 
And this isn't a call for young people only. It's, it's a call to instill these truths ASAP. To remember your creator before the difficult days come. Why? Because you're going to need an anchor when life's storms hit. When we have those days of depression and despondency. When we experience the entropy that life inevitably will bring. And then I love that the the writer goes on to explain before, and he uses all these metaphors, and and kids, maybe you'll enjoy this. I certainly do. He says this, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors of the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters are, are... of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and tears are in the way, and the almond trees blossom, and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about in the streets. What is he talking about there? He's giving a bunch of metaphors for the reality of aging. He says the keepers tremble, the hands they once defended uh, and provided now shake. The strong men bend. He's talking about legs not working the same as they used to. The grinders cease. You have to think about ancient dental care and the lack thereof. And what grinds is falling out left and right. The windows dim. The eyes aren't quite 20-20. The doors of the street shut. They uh, would be used to mute the noise. And from what I'm told, hearing goes out, especially for those of you that love rock and roll music. (laughs) Rising at the sound of the bird. My friend Anthony, who's getting older every day, tells me that sleep is more difficult to come by, and once you're up, you're up. Yeah. Rising at the sound of a bird. Fearful of heights. As you get older, you, in case you didn't know this, uh, watch out for ladders. You fall, you, you break a hip, that's not good. I love this one, the almond trees blossom. If you see a picture of an almond tree in blossom, it's turning white. And I'm not going to make any judgments on any of you right now, but some almond trees are in full blossom, and God bless you all. The grasshopper drags itself along. You think of that bug and its agility and its springiness in its step. And you go from, again, my kids, it's like Theo is running up, jumping on the stage, sliding around, jumping off. I'm like, man. And I, I'm not an old, old man, but I get up and it's, Okay. Desire goes out, you lose your appetite. And so he's saying, remember your creator. So what does that mean, to remember your creator, before as all of these realities of life set in? Derek Kidner says, to remember is not a purely mental act. It is to drop our pretense of self-sufficiency and commit ourselves to him. Sidney Gradanus in his commentary says, to remember your creator is more than to recall that there is a creator, more also than to think about him from time to time. To remember your creator means to bring to mind daily what your creator has done for you and to act on this knowledge. To remember your creator is to make God central to your life and to focus your life on doing his will. So the question is, why don't we? Why do we fail or how do we fail In remembering our creator, well, we're distracted, we're discontent, we're self-absorbed just to name an easy three things. Is there an alternative? Well, 
There is, and it's what the book closes with in verse 13. The end of the matter is at hand. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The conclusion in 13 and 14 is the demolishing has been done, and here's a firm foundation that we can build upon. Again, Derek Kidner, if you want a, a commentary on Ecclesiastes, his is one of the best. He says, we face the appalling inference that nothing has meaning. Nothing matters under the sun. It is then that we can hear as the good news, which it is, that everything matters. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That is how the book ends. On this rock, we can be destroyed. I love this. But it is a rock, not quicksand. There is the chance to build. And so Easter gives us this opportunity um, at least through Ecclesiastes, to take a look at life as it actually is. To take a look at the vanity of life and the purpose and the meaning of it all and ask, what's the point? And what the preacher longed for and looked forward to, we see fully in Jesus that this creator that we're called to remember entered into creation with the good news, where Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. Here's the thing. If Jesus comes, if he just simply preaches good news, dies and stays there, then the answer for the entirety of the universe is this. Vanity, meaningless, vapor, what's the point? There is none. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. Who cares? But... And this is a very important caveat. If the tomb is empty, then the promises of God are fulfilled. Salvation has come. Rescue is available. And that really does change everything. That really is the most important question one needs to answer in life. Is, is the tomb empty? Because if it is, that changes everything everything. If it's full, if there's still a body up in that business, then, then we're wasting our time. Nothing really does matter. But if the tomb of Jesus is empty, then this really does change everything under the sun. And I'm not going to go into this morning all the evidence behind the resurrection. If you'd like to have that discussion or you have questions or doubts about it, totally fair game. Let's, let's talk through that and look at, at history and theology and all of the meaning behind that and the evidence behind it. But, but it's really the most important question that we have to answer and then continue answering in our life. Is Jesus alive and is the resurrection real? Because if it is, then the answer to all of Ecclesiastes' questions is Easter. And what the story of Scripture tells us is that in love, God enters into the so-called meaninglessness of it all and infuses it with meaning. That Jesus answers the what the point, what's the point of it all, and transforms it all through his life, death, and resurrection. 
And Jesus comes not simply giving us uh, morality. He comes not just simply giving us doctrine. He comes not simply giving us ideas to adhere to or believe in. But through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he brings reality into our worlds. He brings hope. He brings meaning. He brings life. He brings freedom. He brings forgiveness. He brings transformation. Because the reality is this. Jesus isn't just merely a genie. He's not a ticket to heaven. He's not a doctrinal system. Jesus is not a reflection of yourself. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the Creator. He's our life. And in love, again, he invites us in to experience this with him which transforms everything. Jesus changes everything. And so what's reality in life? Jesus is reality. Who are we called to remember in life? Jesus is the one. What is the firm foundation upon, one, uh, upon which one can build their life? It's Jesus. Who will hold us in the midst of the struggle in our search for meaning? It's Jesus. And that's the promise of Easter. Through this good news of the gospel and through the power that comes in the resurrection, we are known, we are loved in life, and all of its beautiful and broken facets are infused with meaning as it is. This is what Paul imparts to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter is all about the resurrection and the truth of it. He basically goes on to say if the resurrection isn't real, then we're all idiots and, and this is all in vain. That's the John Wolfinger translation. Uh, but after going through the beauty and the truth and the reality of the resurrection, he closes with this encouragement to this church and to us today. He says... As I get to the right page. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of the resurrection, therefore, because of this victory, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so I believe the invitation for us this Easter is simple. To look at the reality that the tomb is empty. To remember our creator who entered into creation, who took on a cross for our forgiveness, who rose from the dead promising us victory and new life now and forever. And to rebuild or build for the very first time our lives upon the rock that is able to sustain us through all the vapor and enigma and paradox of this life. So friends, let's center and build and focus on the one who died and rose again, our friend and our savior, Jesus. Church, he is risen. He is risen let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word and that you don't offer us cliches. You don't uh, dismiss us with easy answers, but you enter into the fray. You enter into the mess. You see this world as it is. You see us as we are, and you don't shy away. You enter in with love, truth, grace, and mercy, and we need that. And we thank you that that all is available abundantly for us. And we ask that all of that would shape our life with, with meaning 
It would transform our perspective. It would give us hope. And it would root us and ground us for whatever life brings our way. You are our hope. You are our help. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are alive. In your name we pray. Amen.